I humbly beg you, let us have the knife. Let him ask it. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, we're talking about the 1986 supernatural action comedy romp. The Golden Child starring Eddie Murphy. Now, this movie is a first for us. An 80s movie, a classic 80s movie, according to some, a quote, piece of shit, according to others, including one Edward Reagan Murphy, (laughs) uh, the star of the motion picture. But uh, an 80s movie that neither of us actually saw during the 80s. In fact, Biggs, you hadn't seen it at all until we watched it together for, for this episode of the show. True story. Now, I had seen this movie once, uh, but only because my wife referenced it one day, like 20 years ago. We were in the kitchen cooking together, um, which I guess we had time to do back then. That's something before we had children. <laughs> we could just hang out and cook together. Uh, and she she needed a knife. And she goes, I, 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 I want the knife. And looks at me like, huh? Huh? And I was I was just like, are you is is this a stroke? Do I need to call someone? Are you? What's happening here? So in a rare role reversal for us, she was the one for once who was all like, oh my God, you've never seen that movie. And so I did. Um, why didn't we see this when it came out from the trailer? It looks like the ultimate movie for us. Eddie Murphy, who we loved in a supernatural action filled comedy, like literally everything about this movie. It was everything we loved in, in one Film on paper, this should have been our favorite movie. I mean, yes, it got panned by the critics, got terrible reviews, but that's not something we would have would have known or cared about when we were eleven. So why didn't we ever watch it? You know, I've actually seen the trailer for this movie over and over and over again because it was on one of the early VHS movies we had. Back in the day, we only had a handful of films that we owned, and we'd watch those same movies essentially on repeat in the cool darkness of the basement on sweltering summer nights. So I saw this trailer so many times and was so familiar with this movie, but somehow I was never moved to see it. This is a a weird movie. With a weird history. It started off very different. It's a very different movie. Eddie Murphy, who was super hot in 86. He had made 48 hours trading places and Beverly Hills Cop at this point. He picked the golden child from a pile of reportedly like 20 scripts he had to choose from. He could pick, you know, he could do whatever he wanted back then. Because he thought this was the most interesting one. That sounds super weird, having just watched it. But it was apparently way better before Paramount did test screenings for audiences Charles Dance, who uh, I, I think most people know as uh, Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones. He's the bad guy in this movie. I believe this was his first big, like, you know, major movie role. He said in an interview with Fangoria magazine, which I used to love. Do you remember that? We were little horror junkies. Uh, and I would just, man, I love that magazine. Yes, I love flipping through it. I'd be at the Walgreens waiting for my mom and you'd just pick it up and see all these awesome special effects and cool interviews. And I always looked forward to checking that out at the newsstand. So in this interview, Dan says, initially, The Golden Child was a very interesting script, but Paramount basically chickened out. When they first screened it, it was a very different sort of film for Eddie Murphy. Paramount took too much notice of the preview audiences 
unease about the unfamiliarity of Eddie's character. They had gotten to know him so well through Beverly Hills Cop that they wanted the character to be much more like that. So the studio went back and reshot a lot of footage of Eddie doing, quote, Eddie Murphyisms, and put them into the picture. They took out a really sumptuous, weird, and beautiful score by, he says, John Williams. He means John Barry, who did the original score for this movie. And replaced it with something more funky. So basically what you got was Beverly Hills Cop in Tibet. Except nowhere near as good as, as Beverly Hills Cop. Definitely nowhere near as good as Beverly Hills Cop. I added that last part, by the way. That's not part of the interview. But it's true. Kind of a bummer, right? I want to see that movie, that original movie that they that they did. Apparently the novelization of the movie, which was a weird thing. Do you remember those? Are they yes. still a thing? <laughs> Books that aren't... It's not a book that a movie is based on, but a novelization of the script. The best was when you weren't sure which came first, and then you just... All you had to do was read a few pages, and you're like, oh, it's it's absolutely horrible. So this definitely is a novelization. Yeah, and, and whichever it was, the cover would always say... Now a major motion picture starring, I don't know, Warren Beatty. I picked him because you're like, Warren Beatty, what? <laughs> One of the only novelizations I ever read was for um, Dick Tracy back in 1990. I read it before the movie came out. Uh, so the novelization for this movie is apparently based on that original script and is actually pretty good. Doing research for the show, I came across a couple of comments from online from people who had read the novelization before actually seeing the movie. And they were super confused, disappointed by what was on screen. So the movie is weird and disjointed and definitely not what I would call great. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to be a little diplomatic. No, it's not. Look, the movie isn't terrible because this just goes to show you how damn talented Eddie Murphy is. Because it's clear, they, it's totally clear knowing that now what happened with the production of this movie, that they told him to just do some Eddie Murphy-isms, as Charles, Charles Dance said. And he just did. It's just Eddie Murphy being Eddie Murphy. And this movie is, when it's funny, it is laugh-out-loud funny. It's so dumb, but it's so funny. You're right. I mean, it's a testament to his talent and his charisma that just him being on screen, looking around, doing his little his little movements and his little catchphrases and his very classic Eddie Murphy laugh, it's enough to keep you engaged. As we like to do here, let's uh, let's run down the story of the Golden Child. Eddie Murphy plays Chandler Gerald, a finder of lost children. What exactly does now that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, doing research for the show, I've learned that he's apparently a social worker. Mm. But I, he never says that in the movie, does he? No. And in fact, I kind of wanted him to be something that would make sense. So I kept thinking maybe he's a private investigator. Maybe he's actually part of a special police division. Maybe he's a psychic, right? That would have been an interesting story. He's a psychic. He gets visions. He's sort of on a quest. We didn't get anything. We didn't know what he yeah, was. Yeah, we're just like, what? what is he? What is he? So he's approached by a woman, Ki Nang, played by Charlotte Lewis who says that she's seen him on TV. There's but there's a hilarious scene of him on TV with like a, a missing child poster on this, some cable access show. He's uh he's, he's on the show along with like an old woman with a, a pet turtle or something. That was awesome, hilarious yes. scene. And he's looking for a missing girl named Cheryl Mosley. Keenang finds him and tells him that the golden child has been kidnapped and he is the chosen one who must get him back. The Golden Child is a special, magical child. Uh, in the opening scene, right before he's kidnapped, fun fact, by the way, he, the Golden Child, uh, was actually played by a girl. 
even though the character was supposed to be a boy. Right before he's kidnapped, we see the golden child bring a, a dead bird back to life. With some spectacular 80s special effects. Spectacular. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about the, the effects in this movie because um, they are a mixed bag for sure. But when they're good, they're pretty amazing. Anyway, so uh, she tells Eddie Murphy this and he thinks she's crazy. But when he finds Cheryl Mosley, the girl he was looking for, dead the next day near a, ho- near a house with... Uh, Tibetan writing scrawled all over, all over the walls and a pot of bloody oatmeal on the stove. There's a pot of oatmeal and he kind of digs around in it and blood sort of pools to the surface. That scene, by the way, freaked my wife out the most. She was really turned off uh, by oatmeal for a long time. After finding all this, Kenang explains that the golden child had been kept there and takes Chandler, Gerald, to meet someone who may know more about what's going on. So they go see Dr. Hong, played by prolific screen and, and voice actor James Hong, perhaps best known for his role as Lo Pan, mm-hmm. the big bad from uh, Big Trouble in Little China, one of my all-time favorite movies, one that has a lot of parallels with this one, actually. And uh, they meet him and a snake lady who lives in the basement of Dr. Hong's herb shop. Now, Chandler doesn't know she's a snake lady until later because she's hidden behind a screen when he talks to her, but she is, spoiler alert, uh, I mean, you could totally tell something's going on. She's some kind of monster lady behind there. Actually, I guess technically she's a dragon lady because after they meet her, uh, Gerald asks Kenang about her and she tells him that she is uh, Kala. That's her name. And she's the librarian at the Sacred Repository at Palcor Sin and that she's almost 300 years old. Eddie Murphy's like, how'd she pull that off? And Kenang just casually says, one of her ancestors was raped by a dragon. And Eddie, <laughs> funny moment, Eddie Murphy's like, um... Does that happen a lot where you're from? <laughs> anyway, dragon lady, snake lady, Kala, tells Gerald that every thousand generations, a perfect child is born. A golden child, if you will. The bringer of compassion, sent to rescue us from ourselves. And if this golden child dies, compassion dies with him. The world will, as Kala, the dragon snake lady puts it, become hell. And she explains that the golden child cannot be harmed unless he consumes something impure, hence the blood hidden in the oatmeal where he was being uh, held captive. If whoever took him, whoever kidnapped him, could get him to eat the bloody oatmeal, they could kill him. It was interesting because throughout the film, we don't ever see the golden child eat anything except for these little leaves that he's pulling off the sprig he smuggled out with him. It seems like they poisoned or despoiled all the food that they were going to offer him from the very beginning. So it turns out that Cheryl, the missing girl that Eddie Murphy's looking for, had joined the Yellow Dragons gang. She has a, a dragon tattoo on her, on her leg when they find her body. And that she was sold to a guy named Tommy Tong, underling of Sardo Numspa. The, uh, the bad guy we see kidnapped the golden child at the beginning of the movie. And she was killed for her blood. It's her blood that's in the oatmeal. Numspa, Charles Dance, that's his character, uh, kills Tommy Tong because he thinks he might betray him. And then he tells Gerald... Eddie Murphy, in this weird, really weird dream sequence, um, he tells him that he will give up the golden child, but only in exchange for the magical Ajanti dagger. So, Keenang and Gerald travel to Tibet, um, which I think is really believably recreated in this movie. I kind of thought they might have 
done this like on location, but it's in California at like a ski resort, apparently. But it looks pretty convincing. Uh, they go to get the dagger. And this is where we meet Key's father, who is the head priest, monk guy at the temple where the dagger is being kept. And he's played by Victor Wong, who is also in Big Trouble in Little China. To prove himself worthy of the dagger, Gerald must complete a double dare-esque physical challenge. <laughs> he has to carry a glass of water across an obstacle course suspended over a bottomless pit without spilling a drop. I mean, it really was like those old Nickelodeon double dare shows and very, very far from something like an American Ninja Warrior. That's a true test of your physical metal, right? Because this really comprised not much more than a suspension bridge and some wooden pylons he's stepping across. And he does it. He does it. He completes the challenge, but he totally spills some water. You can see it. <laughs> he definitely Why didn't did. they just edit it out? <laughs> Whatever. Nobody cared, I guess. Uh, so he gets the dagger and he and Kenang head back to America. This is where we get, I think, maybe the funniest scene in the movie. When they're boarding the plane back to America, this airport scene in Nepal where they're trying to just sneak this giant dagger onto the plane. Hilarious. We were watching this and like our sides hurt. We were laughing so hard. This is just classic Eddie Murphy. It was a masterful scene. Eddie Murphy was, you know, showing his comedic prowess. It felt a little bit like an SNL skit. Um, and frankly, it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite movies, Fletch, where you have to think quickly on your feet. You have to be able to impersonate. You have to be able to use your charisma to sell it. And they definitely sold it. And it was it was truly laugh-out-loud funny. We were cracking up. So they land back in America, and Sardo Numspa is waiting at the airport, ready to claim the dagger. Chandler tells him that he'll get the dagger when he hands over the child. However, in the wee hours of the morning the next day, Numspa and his men attack the house that Gerald and Keenang are staying at, and Keenang is killed, saving Gerald from a crossbow fired by Numspa, who leaves with the dagger. Gerald brings her body back to the herb shop, and Dr. Hong and Kala, the dragon lady, tell him that the golden child can save Keenang, like he did the, uh, the bird, we saw at the beginning of the a movie. Bit of foreshadowing there. Right. Mm -hmm. They set that up real nice. <laughs> uh, but he's got to act fast because at sundown, Numspa will be able to use the dagger to kill the golden child. Gerald confronts Numspa, who, as it turns out, uh, is a demon. He transforms into this big, winged, uh, almost skeletal-looking demon. And there's a big climactic chase scene and a final showdown. And with the help of the golden child and the magical dagger... The demon is defeated. The golden child saves Kinang. And everyone presumably lives happily ever after. Since this movie closes with the big special effects showpiece of Numspa, Numzi, dear sweet brother Numzi, as Eddie Murphy calls him in the movie, uh, him transforming into this big winged demon, I want to talk about the effects. Like I said, a bit of a mixed bag for sure. But when they're good... They're pretty damn great. The stop motion stuff, uh, like the demon, was actually done by Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's special effect company. And it's actually pretty revolutionary. I mean, they are significantly better than some of the earlier 80s movies like Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. That actually was a Ray Harryhausen film doing stop motion animation of skeletons that looked quite a bit like this demon in this movie. Um, and even things... They were, I would say, on par with Ghostbusters from 1984 in some ways, although you definitely felt the stop motion 
aspect of it more than doing practical effects. You know what I mean? I think when you do practical effects well, it can feel timeless. When you're doing stop motion, it always has that little bit of an animated feel to it. But I think you're right. They pulled it off by and large. And as we saw with a lot of that older stop motion animation, when you just stop motion animate an object, it can look really fake when put with real moving screen, uh, moving things on the screen like people. Because unlike those real things that are actually moving, there's no motion blur on the stop motion animated object. Every frame is crystal clear, and that's just not how it's just not how things look when they're moving. Yes. So for this movie, they use a technique called go motion, and this technique adds that motion blur. So they did this uh, with the with the demon, and the animation itself. It looks really great. I mean, from a design standpoint, he's kind of silly and cartoony looking. But technically speaking, uh, I think this is some of the best stop motion animation of the 80s in this movie. How hilarious is it that we're talking about this in 2020 as sort of a technological upgrade from the early 80s? And now all of this stuff is done with just you know, the sweep of a mouse, right? The computer can do all of this stuff a thousand times better. So much so that now the question we ask when we look at special effects is, can you even tell at all if it's a practical effect or a special effect? Like sometimes you just don't even know if the environment was fake or not. It's incredible. It's really crazy. There's another um, great sequence earlier in the movie when the golden child brings a, a Pepsi can to life. Do you remember this? When he turns it into like a little guy and makes it dance around to put on the Ritz. That's a pretty amazing looking sequence. Ken Ralston, who was the effects supervisor for this movie, said the Golden Child was, quote, like initiation by fire because they used some really cutting edge technology that they were testing out for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which would come out uh, a couple years later, I believe. And it was going well, so they decided to use it live for the first time for this movie while it was still kind of being tested out and experimented with. And Ralston said that that was a, a scary decision. And I guess they cut it really close in terms of getting the, the effects ready in time for the, the movie's premiere. But I think it paid off. This same tech that they were developing would go on to actually play a huge part in the animation of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. So this movie, while, you know, culturally kind of a, a footnote in terms of effects... It has uh, some real importance and some really cool special effects roots. That little Pepsi can ditty was actually really cute. And it was, again, so characteristic of this age of filmmaking that we absolutely had to have a product placement and particularly a cute one, right? I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised. Maybe maybe it did. They probably marketed a little Pepsi guy right after the movie. I don't remember it, but maybe because the movie wasn't such a great box office hit that we didn't see yeah, it. Yeah, little little Pepsi can guy did not go on to become a beloved mascot <laughs> and, and brand ambassador for Pepsi. Um, let's talk about the music. The only piece of music that really made an impression on me that I even remember was a song by Rat. Uh, a great hair metal band called Body Talk that plays during the, the big brawl, the fight scene against the Yellow Dragon biker gang. Fun fact, the biker with uh, the bad breath, there's a guy who comes and kind of tackles Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy tells him to have some Tic Tacs. Mm-hmm. This is uh, an uncredited Gene LaBelle who is an absolute martial arts and stuntman Hollywood legend. He's a, a world champion wrestler, and judo-er, 
a judo guy, whatever you call a judo guy. Um, and he's done stunts for basically everything in the 70s, 80s, 90s. This movie, The Lost Boys, Tango and Cash, uh, which we'll be talking about on our, on our next show, Robocop, seriously, everything. So many classic shows and movies. Go to IMDb and look him up. Gene LaBelle, he's amazing. Hollywood legend has it that uh, Gene LaBelle was working on a movie with Steven Seagal once, and Steven Seagal was bragging about how nobody could choke him out. So Gene LaBelle took him up on the challenge and choked him out so hard that Steven Seagal uh, pooped his pants. <laughs> just right there in front of everybody. Just just soiled himself. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a weird tangent. Um, so the score for this movie got kind of turned upside down when the test audience reception of the whole thing wasn't great because Eddie Murphy wasn't Eddie Murphying hard enough for everybody. The original composer that Charles Dance mentioned in that quote earlier in the show, John Barry, five-time Academy Award winner and multiple-time Grammy and Golden Globe Award winner, he put together an apparently pretty memorable soundtrack score. Uh, but then when the tone of the whole project shifted, I guess he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out. And that's when French composer Michel Colombier was brought on board. And he's got some impressive Hollywood credits to, uh, of his own, including... And this is wild. I did not know this. The score to the movie Purple Rain. Did you know someone other than Prince did the music for Purple Rain? Because I, I had no idea. There's all the Prince music. But then this dude uh, did the, the movie music, the score. So the Golden Child score went from very orchestral uh, and kind of epic to very synthy, which isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. But overall, I think in this case... Man, this score is pretty generically 80sly forgettable. I have to agree. Like, it never really rose to the forefront at any point, and I can't conjure up any songs or parts of the score easily in my mind. At the top of the show, we mentioned Eddie Murphy's opinion of this movie. In a 1989 Rolling Stone interview, he was talking about how his movies always made money. And he said, no matter how I feel, for instance, about The Golden Child which was a piece of shit. The movie made more than $100 million, so who am I to say it sucks? Most critics um, agreed with his opinion. Here are some highlights from the Washington Post's review from 1986. In The Golden Child, the camera becomes a sort of yes-man, a member of Eddie Murphy's entourage. As you dwell on his close-up, as every wink and smirk becomes a matter of great moment, you know what it's like to be, say, his masseur. That's funny. Like you're just trapped in a room with with him, Eddie Murphying, um, <laughs> which you kind of are when you watch this movie. Uh, the review continues. The entire movie is tailored to Murphy, sodden with a sense that his every remark is hilarious, that his every smoldering look will have ushers shuttling back and forth with salts of ammonia to revive the women expiring in the aisles. The Golden Child is edited to Murphy's sloppy, improvisational rhythms, so we watch him stumbling with his lines, searching for laughs he never finds. I really like that one. I think that that captures so much of it. Another quote from that that article is, Nobody can take 48 hours or Beverly Hills Cop away from Murphy. And in the hands of a director such as Walter Hill or Martin Brest, he can be a vivid and inventive comic heroic leading man. But Michael, Michael Ritchie isn't in that directorial class. Ritchie bullies you with an overloud routine brass and thump score. The action sequences are cloddishly orchestrated, and for the most part, the movie simply doesn't make sense. So interesting to read that, knowing what we know now about 
how the movie was changed and all the, the Eddie Murphy isms were just shoehorned in. It's almost like this reviewer like picked up on that. One reviewer that did like this movie was our uh, hometown guy, Roger Ebert. He gave it three stars, three out of four stars, and said, The Golden Child might not be the Eddie Murphy movie we were waiting for, but it will do. It's funnier, more assured, and more tailored to Murphy than Beverly Hills Cop, and it shows a side of his comedic persona that I don't think has been much appreciated. His essential underlying sweetness. Murphy's comedy is not based on hurt and aggression, but on affection and understanding that comes from seeing right through the other characters. I really like that. Um... You know, we do get kind of a, a little bit of a different Eddie Murphy in this movie. A little more, uh, a little warmer, a little more endearing. This was, after all, his first non-R-rated movie at the time. So that had something to do, I'm sure, with, with the, uh, the tone he was allowed to take. So I like, I like Ebert's take. Um, I don't know that it goes so far as to say that it's a better fit than Beverly Hills Cop was. Um, but... Considering what we know about the movie and how it was made and changed, I think Eddie Murphy did a great job. I want to close the show out with a question for you, Biggs. Is this movie worth watching here in 2020? I am actually going to answer the question I just asked you uh, instead of letting you answer it. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> um, to say yes. I'm going to say yes. Number one, because Eddie Murphy is, as we said, hilarious. And number two, knowing what you know now about this film, if you go in and watch it for the first time, I feel like you can appreciate it a little bit more. The the job that Eddie Murphy does when the whole movie is changed. And you can tell, like, I bet these lines probably weren't even written, right? He probably <laughs> ad-libbed most of this when test audiences, you know, didn't like the movie. They didn't like the Eddie Murphy they were seeing in the movie. Uh, God forbid Eddie Murphy acts like anyone other than Eddie Murphy in a movie as an actor. At the screening, people were sitting there and they were like, it's good, but we we just want a lot more Eddie Murphy. Can you bring more Eddie Murphy? <laughs> but uh, yeah, knowing knowing what we know now about the movie, I would say that makes it even more worth watching. What do you think? I agree. I think even though there are lots of parts of it that are kind of slow, kind of random, and frankly, a bit confusing. There is enough of his charismatic comedic genius that shines through to make it worth looking for those little gems throughout this film. And because it's not a super long movie or a super complex movie, this would be a perfect thing to mindlessly put on in the background, maybe while you're folding laundry or cleaning up the kitchen. It's one of those movies that kind of has a charm about it that is worth connecting to, even if it's only once many years after it released. For those of you that have seen it, what do you think? Is this a beloved classic of yours? Is it a big old piece of shit, as Eddie Murphy believed it was? Um, let us know. Hit us up anywhere on social media, just about anywhere. At McQuaid Arcade on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Gmail and whatever else. What do you think of The Golden Child? Weird and disjointed, and definitely not what one would call great describes this movie perfectly but like chandler the self-described finder of lost children we viewers can be finders of lost gems and sift through some of the rough parts of the golden child to yield some comedic gold indeed and on that note stay limber <laughs> <laughs>